Good morning and happy Sabbath again. For today's scripture reading, Sierra and I will be reading Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26 out of a TNIV Bible. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbiddance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. Church and church uh, prerogatives and church life and why church and uh, I've been stimulated by this series that doesn't mean you have been but I've really enjoyed looking at church and why church and what we get to do together that we don't get to do on our own and how that adds uh, importance and value to our gatherings week to week and and makes it important that we we persist part of the whole call of God in Revelation is that the saints endure Really, it's, it's an endurance race. This continuing in faith, this continuing in belief, this continuing in action that uh, fulfills what Christ has asked us to do, that we, if we love him, that we love one another just as he loved us. That sort of self-sacrificing love. As we live out these prerogatives and these uh, priorities in the life of the church, as we endure together, as we encourage one another not to lose heart, not to lose hope, not to lose faith. And it it happens, doesn't it? You know somebody who's lost heart, hope, faith? Come on, you can raise your hand on this one. Do you know somebody who's lost heart, hope, or faith? I do. It's a tragedy. And hopefully together by encouraging one another we we have the opportunity to avoid that. Today I'm looking at events that mark a life and we'll pick this theme up again next week because it's a little bigger than I can do in one Sabbath. The Catholic Church calls them sacraments. I didn't grow up Catholic. I don't know a whole lot about how they have uh, understood those and how they've come to be, but I've done a little research and found that we might call some of these things uh, ordinances, services, um, but they, they come down to similar sorts of pieces. And there's a strong biblical basis for all of them. As some of you might recall, the one, what the Catholic Church would call sacrament, what we would call an ordinance that has already uh, been dealt with in the life of the church, is, uh, was done Memorial Day weekend. In the sermon entitled In Memoriam, in which we looked at the fact that it is our job as Christians to hold in our memories what it is that Christ accomplished on the cross. We are particularly celebrating the deliverance of Passover in the Christian context, that is to say, not just a deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but a deliverance of, from slavery to sin. We get to celebrate the deliverance we have from death to life. And it takes place in what Catholics would call a sacrament, in a meal that we share. And the ordinance of humility in which we prepare ourselves for that meal and 
the eating of the bread and the drinking of the, the juice or the wine. And in having that meal, sort of play acting, not, not that we're insincere, not that we're fakers, but reenacting an event that marks something pivotally important for Christians, foundationally important for Christians, fundamental to the Christian life and experience, and that is the communion, the Lord's Supper. Remembering this until he comes and looking forward to the day when we will enjoy communion with him in heaven as a marker forever. So that's one we've already covered. Communion is one of those. For Catholics, it's sometimes called the Mass. Uh, Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. For us, we call it communion and we practice that roughly quarterly in the Adventist church. Not that we couldn't do it more or even do it less, but we try really hard to do it often enough to remember what we're about and seldom enough for it to become a mindless routine for everybody. You know, we, 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 routines are good and we fall into those. Hopefully you've all figured out that you need to brush your teeth every morning and drink a glass of water or two. And, you know, you have a routine and hopefully you've got a healthy one and one that gets you going and yet you don't have to think much about it usually. Do you? No, that's the point of a routine. And we want you to think about what it is you're doing when you take the bread and drink of the cup. We want you to think about the meaning and what Christ has done and is doing in our lives corporately and individually. So that's one of the uh, uh, pieces that we're, we're going to look at. But before we uh, move to the new ones, I just want to kind of lay a, a groundwork for what these are about in general. Because an astonishing thought is this. The church itself is a sort of living uh, sacrament, if you will. Again, I'm using a Catholic word, but it comes from the Greek word mystery. Mysterion, which means mystery. The very existence of church is mystery. And we find that actually well illustrated in Scripture. We find it in Colossians 1.18. Paul is speaking of the supremacy of Christ and he gets to verse 18 and he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. That is an amazing passage. He is the head of the body which is the church. Now, this is clearly a mystery. Uh, Bodies don't live apart from heads, and heads aren't usually separate entities combined with bodies. We usually think of all of this as going together. And yet, in the life of the church, Christ is, by analogy, the head, and the, the church collective, all of us who make it up, the gathering that is church, 
become body. Now we're not talking about building. We're not talking about denomination. We're not talking about any of the particularities that we use organizationally. We're talking about the gathering of people who believe and by faith have accepted the gift of God. That's what we're talking about. And Christ stands as the head of that body, of that group, and calls us forth to be a body. The mystery is extended in other places in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, uh, through the gifts of the Spirit, for example. We see very clearly again Christ the head and the body which is diverse, made up of many parts, given many different things. And if you look around, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We have many personalities here, many talents, many capabilities, and ultimately by the Spirit's power, we might even be gifted with different gifts of the Spirit. And it is not that the one should be upset that the other is doing something differently, or has a gift that, that I don't have or you don't have, but it is that together we represent the fullness of the range of capabilities and gifts. Together we complete the body. We're able to move forward in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. This mystery, this essential truth, is one of the foundational reasons for church because I firmly believe Jesus Christ came as a, a Jew, it wasn't his intention to set up a church in Asia Minor or Rome or whatever the early world of Europe was. He came to show the Father, as we read. He came to offer a corrective to the misalignment of, of understandings that had begun to develop. He came and said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, he came to kind of set the record straight and to show people the Father and the love of the Father and the grace and the truth. And what happened was that while there were a lot of Jews who believed, you know the history, there were a lot of Jews who rejected Christ as Messiah as well. And it was those who believed who were gathered in Jerusalem. It was those who had come to celebrate Passover and who were part of the crucifixion scene and who were in the upper room wondering what next, who 50 days later received the Spirit at Pentecost. It was at that point, Acts chapter 2, that the church is growing by thousands of people a day because of the witness of the Spirit. And so we see a church form out of a response, out of a need of shared conviction and shared purpose and shared understanding and God blessing that and growing that and multiplying that and moving it into the entire world. So that's sort of the, the, the foundational mystery, the foundational piece, the fact that church exists, the fact that we gather as believers, the fact that there's a Christian church is a, a wonderful mystery. Christ as the head of the body. Now, we, we understand, at least in the Catholic sense, these things to be divided up in the following ways. Christian initiation includes baptism by their terms, confirmation in the Eucharist. Put in Adventist terms, 
we stress the importance, as I said earlier, of membership, which comes, if you already have it, by transfer from one church to another on recommendation of both churches, or comes through baptism or profession of faith if you've been baptized by immersion in another faith. Those are the only avenues to, to membership. And those are very important in our church because they're part of this entrance into the mystery entrance into partaking of this wider body of which we each have a place in which we each have a role to play we each have a part something important to do because God has called us to it and he is the head we don't have confirmation per se but this is the laying on of hands that the Holy Spirit might be received and we do have rough equivalents um we believe that at baptism the Holy Spirit is given. So those two kind of merge for us. Uh, and then the Eucharist, of course, so, and translated into Adventees again, that would be communion service. And we have some differences of theology too. I don't, I don't want to take the time to get into those about what the Eucharist is and how it comes to us. For Adventists, the Eucharist or the uh, communion is a symbolic meal. And uh, we participate symbolically. It's the reenactment or enactment of these things. But I want to take a minute today uh, to look at um, baptism uh, as, a, as a sort of starting point. Jesus makes the observation that you must be born of what? Water and spirit. Now this is translated a number of ways or understood a number of ways. For some, the meaning is clear. You must be baptized and you must receive the Spirit. And if you aren't baptized, you can't be saved. Now there are a lot of people who believe that. I personally think God is bigger than that. I personally read Scripture and understand this passage to mean something slightly different. The birth of water is the first birth. We must be born physically. And the birth of spirit is our spiritual birth. We must be born spiritually. And this understanding uh, transcends that notion because if we really believed that baptism was necessary for salvation, we would do what Catholics do, wouldn't we? When a baby is born, what would we do? Baptize it immediately. Why would we do that? Because we would want to make sure that if anything happened, a crib death, a tragedy, a car wreck, something else, that that baby wouldn't be lost for all eternity. But our, our view of God is a little different than that. We see God as, is more generous than that and wanting our love by our choice, wanting our response to his actions in ways that we can actually process and think about, unlike a baby. So we dedicate a baby as Jesus was dedicated. We bless a baby, asking God to, to be its God and to guide its parents and to grant it safety and life. We trust God with these things, but baptism gets to be something that a person chooses. Jesus did it as an adult, 30 more or less years old. He goes to his cousin John who is preaching a baptism of repentance. And he asks to be baptized and John does not want to do it. John doesn't want to do it out of two reasons. One, a sense of unworthiness. 
And two, I, I think John had to know that this was the perfect lamb who taketh away the sin of the world because that's what he said about Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If this is the lamb, the unblemished lamb that takes away sin, there is no need for the remission of sin, for the removal of sin from Jesus in baptism. But Jesus sets the example. And in being baptized, when he comes up out of those waters, you know the story in John chapter 3, I think, or 4. He hears the voice of his father and those around him hear it as well. What does that voice say? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I hope every last one of you have heard that voice when you came up out of the water. I hope when you took that step and you were baptized in the waters of baptism, when you came up out of that water, in your mind you heard God say, you are my daughter, you are my son, you are my child. I love you. And I am so pleased with you and so proud of you. What a powerful thing. And the confirmation is given. I've talked about this before. John is a witness. The Spirit is a witness. And Jesus receives a rabbinic status that enables him to have his own school. His disciples follow him after his temptations and his experience in the wilderness. And his ministry is powerful. He, he has power. Baptism is a right. It's one of those things that we receive. It's one of those things that happen that we can't do for ourselves. I remember being seven, eight, nine years old, and Dr. Boyce had a pool in my hometown. And he would invite the kids over from the Sabbath school divisions or whatever to swim. We'd have ice cream. You remember those kind of days, hot summer days, and the water was nice and cool, and you'd dive and splash around and play and be yelled at by the parents for running around the pool and yeah, all that good stuff. And, and of course, ice cream. You had to have the ice cream. And we'd have our Sabbath school parties there. Whenever I got to a pool, I can remember sort of pretending to baptize myself. Or in the bathtub, did you ever do that? Did you ever go to church as a kid? You see a baptism and then you go home and you're like in the tub and you're kind of leaning back and plugging, plugging, your, plugging your nose and saying the words you heard the pastor say and you, you kind of dunk under the water and come, maybe that's why I'm a pastor and you're not. I'm. Anyway, I thought that was really, but you know what? It doesn't work that way. We don't get to baptize ourselves. And we don't get to witness that ourselves. That is witnessed by the Spirit and that is witnessed by the one baptizing. And in our context, it's witnessed by the body at large. It becomes a wonderful affirmation. It becomes a wonderful signifier of the grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ the hope we have in him, of our intention to live in him and walk with him and receive him. 
it becomes a wonderful signifier of our belonging to the wider body of Christ. Those who've taken this step and made this choice. We're, several analogies scripturally, right? We're buried, the old man of sin is buried, so to speak, and we are raised, cleansed and clean, resurrected into the life of Christ. That's one analogy. The other is we're spiritually sort of dipped in the uh, spiritual amniotic waters of our spiritual birth to be reborn, a new person. Baptism is something that we choose and it's something that we receive, but it is only something that can happen in the context of body in the context of church. It doesn't mean you can't have a baptism that's out in the woods or in a creek. It doesn't mean you can't do one with two or three witnesses instead of 500 witnesses. There's no law that says it has to be one way or the other. But it does mean that it's not a private, personal event. It means that it's something that comes to you in the life of body in the life of the church. So, we have communion, the grace that comes to us in Christ as we look forward to the day in which we will drink of the cup and break bread with him in heaven. We have the communion, which is a signifier of his body broken for us and the blood that he spilt that we might be cleansed of sin and that the sacrifice of the lamb might be finished once for all, that all who believe can be saved. And we have baptism, this grace that comes to us in a rebirth of sorts. The third, oh, and I am about out of time. I might pick this one up more next week. The third one is what they call confirmation or the gift of the Spirit. I want to make a few comments about that. Probably um, this whole thing is connected best. Let me find this in my notes. In Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. We usually think of this as descriptive of Christ, the branch from Jesse's root. And Jesus reads this passage, recall, in Nazareth and says, today is the scripture fulfilled in your, word, in your hearing. And they rush him out of the synagogue and try to throw him off the cliff. Do you remember that story? But in 11.2 it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and power, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will judge not by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with the righteous, 
He will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And it goes on to describe that. But did you catch that? The Spirit isn't just capitalized for Spirit of the Lord. It's the Spirit capital of wisdom, a personification, if you will, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of power, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And we see these same things reiterated in 1 Corinthians where the gifts of the Spirit are described. And of course we have the fruits of the Spirit as well. But looking at this just from a practical point of view, in the Catholic context, if you've been baptized as an infant or as a very, very small child, you haven't had a process whereby you could make a choice. You haven't reached... uh, concrete levels of thinking, let alone abstract levels of thinking. You're not able to to enter into the mystery intellectually yet. But usually around eighth grade graduation, about the time one is, is leaving elementary school and going into high school, they study for and take what's called confirmation classes. And at the end of that, they are given the right of the Holy Spirit, which is the laying on of hands that they might receive this spirit which manifests itself in wisdom and understanding, counsel and power, knowledge and fear of the Lord. Well, we don't have an equivalent because we don't baptize as an infant. When we baptize, we catechize. That is to say, when we baptize, we prepare people for baptism by teaching them what they need to know, by training them in the framework of belief that defines church. And when they've had that training and when we've talked to them about what they might be able to do and the roles they might get to play in that, we believe that as with Christ's baptism, the Spirit comes with baptism. Now there is one little hole in that, in that we find in the New Testament in Acts the story of Gentiles who had not yet been baptized but who had received the Holy Spirit. And Peter is surprised by this, as are all the Jewish believers, because the circumcised cannot believe that the Holy Spirit would dwell in and act in the uncircumcised. It's part of what opens up the Gentile mission. It's part of what makes the church a universal reality. And they ask the question, if they've already received the Spirit, if they're already praying by the Spirit and doing these things by the Spirit, why wouldn't we baptize them? And they do, without circumcision. So that is sort of the very early root of of a lot of conversations that are had in Corinthians and other places about what it means to be a Christian. So for us, this is very special. Now there's one other aspect of this that I'm going to tease out in the next couple of minutes. And that is that very, very frequently in Scripture we find that uh, the Holy Spirit was given by an act. In Jesus' case, there were times when he breathed on people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. In the apostles' era, it was the laying on of hands. Turn with me to Acts. And this has implications for some of the other things that we do, such as ordination and prayer for the sick. Um, But turn with me to Acts 1. Excuse me, Acts 2, 1 to 4. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all in one place together. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And we move to verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children. And then we go to Acts 10, 44 to 48. I didn't know this, but the Catholics sometimes call Acts the gospel of the Holy Spirit, which is very interesting. 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. This was what I was referring to a minute ago. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is sort of this charismatic background. But as we go further, we find that many times, let's look at maybe Acts 6, verse 6. This is the ordaining of the deacons, and it says in verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. In the notes there, it says that the laying on of hands was used in the Old Testament period to confer a blessing. And that's very much the case. Or to transfer guilt from sinner to sacrifice. Or to commission a person for a new responsibility. In the New Testament, though, laying on of hands was reserved. It was observed in healing for blessing, ordaining or commissioning, and the imparting of spiritual gifts. In this case, the deacons were appointed to responsibilities given by the twelve. And so, this is one of those notes that helps us understand as we read many of these passages where it says, and he laid hands on them, and he laid hands on them, that for the apostles anyway, who had been in direct contact with Christ, there was a power that was transmitted. There was a grace that was imparted and with Christ himself with the laying on of hands. And so that endures today as a tradition in our church. And that again is not something that we get to do on our own. Can the Holy Spirit speak to an individual? Of course. Can a Holy Spirit work and move through an individual? Of course. Can the Holy Spirit transcend denominational lines? Absolutely. Can the Holy Spirit transcend religious lines? Absolutely. Can the Holy Spirit work with anybody receptive? Absolutely. So I'm not trying to limit God, but I am trying to say that in the context of the early church, many times the gifts of the Spirit 
Many times the presence of the Spirit. Many times this was accompanied as the apostles who had been with Jesus laid hands on people. And so while we don't have this particular understanding that the Catholic Church has, we look for the gifts of the Holy Spirit as we have given ourselves to God in baptism. And we look for the gifts of the Spirit as we pray for and encourage one another and as we lay holy hands on one another. And you can do it all day long, but it doesn't work for yourself. It's good to be a body. Let's pray. Lord, you've drawn us together to accomplish things amongst ourselves that couldn't be accomplished by us as individuals. You've called us to mirror a reality of body life of which you are the head and the captain and the one who calls us. You've brought us together to experience certain things that we might find your grace ever more meaningful and present in our lives. You give us your spirit that we might work the things you've asked us to work. And we thank you. We ask now that as we break for today and go about our business this week, that you will keep us mindful, mindful of your gifts and your graces, mindful of your calling, mindful of your supremacy, and mindful of one another, that the body of Christ may be lifted up as Christ is lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen.